I'm not a documentarian. I'm not trying to reflect what is there. In fact, there is no such thing as a documentary photograph because there is no objective reality in human life, let alone in a photograph. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Ever since Andy Warhol hired Matthew Ralston as a young Art Center student to shoot a portrait of Steven Spielberg, Matthew has shaped our conception of glamour and celebrity in photography and video. His highly conceptualized, dramatically lit images have appeared in such publications as Vogue, Vanity Fair, and Harper's Bazaar, and graced the covers of over a hundred Rolling Stone magazines. He also bears the distinction of shooting Oprah for her magazine more than any other photographer. His career directing award-winning music videos spans several decades and covers a diverse array of iconic artists, including Michael Jackson, Madonna, and Beyonce. His commercial work includes campaigns for L'Oreal, Revlon, and Ralph Lauren. More recently, Matthew turned his talents toward building a body of work in fine art photography. Over the past five years, he has produced three acclaimed large-scale exhibitions. Talking Heads, the Venthaven portraits, debuted in 2013, featuring a series of evocative close-up images of ventriloquist dummies. He then turned his lens on the mummified remains of Sicilian noblemen in Vanitas, the Palermo portraits. And with art people, the pageant portraits, he captured both the artifice and humanity behind the tableau vivant created by performers in Laguna Beach's annual Pageant of the Masters. Links to all three of these portrait series, as well as more examples of Matthew's work, can be found in the episode's show notes and at matthewralston.com. Over the course of our animated conversation, Matthew and I discuss his pantheon of creative influences, his aesthetic of the unity of opposites, his ambivalence about the fashion industry's unrealistic standards of wealth and beauty, and his fortuitous meeting as a young art center student with his childhood hero, Richard Avedon. Well, thank you very much, Matthew, for being here today and for your willingness to engage in this conversation. It's great it's to have you here. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Lauren. I'm particularly interested in exploring with you the kind of spirit of who you were as a young child, what you remember about your own creative sensibility at that time. Well, I grew up in the Hancock Park section of Los Angeles, about a block and a half away from the Third Street location of the campus. I, I believe that was the campus before the move to Pasadena. Right, it was. I would ride my bike over after school, uh, ditch it in the bushes, and haunt the halls, peek in all the rooms, smell the grease paint, so to speak, the roar of the crowd. And uh, Art Center had an inescapable glamour for me from the first day I walked through the door. And my fascination continues to this day. I feel like I've been going to Art Center my entire life. I mean, I truthfully have. And and your memory of, of who you were as a child, compelled by creative enterprise? I mean, obviously you spent an enormous time doing it, as you just described, but... Do you, do you remember, I mean, is it all you wanted to do? Was it uh, a kind of driving force even at the youngest age? I think the first things that are ex I was exposed to and they're their absolute portrait of who I am today were my mom's Harper's Bazaars and a compilation book from The New Yorker of Charles Adams' cartoons. So that probably says it all. 
a, a twisted uh, sense of humor and a lot of interest in elegance and style. Right, right. Are you aware of that informing the playfulness of your artistry even at that young age? No doubt about it. I think I'm probably, in many ways, a child of uh, the thinking spawned by the editor Carmel Snow, who was the Harper's Bazaar editor that invented Richard Avedon, Alexei Brodovich, Diana Vreeland. I mean, she really, I wouldn't have known it at the time, of course, I know it now, but she really was uh, the American woman who set in style the American point of view of post-war fashion and, and glamour. I'd like to transition to a discussion about your project, Talking Heads. I actually think it's an interesting way to explore all your work. Can you first describe to listeners what the project is about? Talking Heads is a series of monumentally scaled color portraits of uh, ventriloquism dummies that are housed in a unique and small collection of a museum called the Van Haven Museum in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. Uh, they are headshots, close-ups of the faces of these dummies, and yet they seem alive. Clearly, they're not alive. Uh, that was an examination into projection, into human simulacra, and uh, a meditation on imperfection and the tragedy of humans believing they can be God or even touch God. Portraiture has always been my subject. Even if it involves style or fashion, it wasn't fashion photography. It wasn't style photography. It was portraiture uh, using style uh, to make a commentary all kinds of style. I don't just mean fashion and makeup and styling, but the style of the photograph, the concept behind the photograph. So in a way, my approach has always been conceptual. I don't think that I've made that many left turns creatively in my life. I think it's more a progression that's like a tree that grows and has more branches than leaves, but they all grow from the same root. So this fascination with identity and the ability of photography to create a false reality that we believe because we are hardwired to believe what we see. And that's one of the great untruths, or maybe one of the great truths about photography itself, is that it's entirely a falsehood. And I began to realize that I needed to dig a little bit deeper into myself. Uh, the work I did before Talking Heads was commissioned by others to serve their purposes, whether it was a, a magazine, a record company, a movie studio, an uh, advertising agency. Uh, yes, my personal commentary was in there, but it was to serve someone else. Right. And for many years, people would look at my work and they'd say, oh, we love your editorial photography, but what's your personal work about? And I was a little taken aback. I'd say, well, this is pretty personal. So clearly, I didn't have the need to go beyond that work. But perhaps it's due to the aging process, you realize there's only so many years left. I realized that and realized I wanted to do some things that were self-assigned and took my interest in identity and portraiture and the falsehood of photography and go deeper with it. So I started casting about for what that subject might be. And I happened to see an article in the New York Times about the Vent Haven Museum. It was written by Edward Rothstein, who's a cultural critic for the Times. It had a large picture of the, the he had taken of uh, the dummies at Van Haven, all sitting in little chairs. Even before I read the article or the headline, I saw the picture. And I thought, well, what is that? Because, look, I love faces. And that was the best lineup of faces I've ever seen or had seen to date. Uh, so I immediately read the article, and then I went online and saw the Van Haven Museum's website and became quite obsessed. And, uh, you know, as a creative person, you learn job number one is research. So the very first thing I did once I was convinced that this was a worthy subject was get on a plane, well, make a phone, few phone calls, and then get on a plane and go meet the people at the museum, go see the place, 
you can only go by appointment. Uh, so I made an appointment and talked to the curator and went down there to Kentucky and saw the place and it was completely taken the minute I walked in the door. What did you see? I saw uh, something tragic uh, and touching and beautiful that has to do with the human desire to create human simulacra, to uh, imbue it with projected emotion. We look at images of humans, whether they are films, photographs, something I know a bit about, sculpture, devotional objects, and we imbue them with life. Mm -hmm. They are not living. Mm -hmm. It is our life that we put in them. And I realized at that moment that that was the real subject. Uh, the surface was incredibly fascinating. Amazing faces that are, that are time-worn and show the kind of tragic desire for a man to touch God and create life. But at the same time, I realized that they could symbolize something else. And I, another revelation was that I could use heated subject matter, visually exciting subjects, to entice an audience to gaze, perhaps over a period of time, at a work, and uh, begin to you know, scratch their head and think about what's underneath that. And so that was a way into people's unconscious and a way to begin a conversation. And you mean, when you say what's underneath it, do you mean what is stimulating that kind of investment that we have as, as observers or in what's case, in ourselves as observers as we engage with? I would say both, uh -huh. both. To understand the process, which is something that we just take for granted, it's automatic in our culture. So to, first of all, be uh, thoughtful and question that process mm -hmm. and then think about why. I think that there are several levels of engagement in the area of ventriloquism. First, there's the ventriloquist himself, who creates a character, uh, writes uh, a dialogue for two, although it all springs from his mind, and he operates the simulacra and the voice. So there's a space between himself and the object, and then there's the space between his performance with the object and the audience. It's all interconnected. Right. And all of us suspend our disbelief for the sake of entertainment uh, and to have the joy of observing uh, this type of culture. Uh, and it's the same in films, the same in photography. Don't you think it's more than just entertainment, though? It can be. I think entertainment today is a modern substitute for what in ancient times might have been a devotional activity or a spiritual activity. Right, right. I mean, there's very m many levels that seem involved in it in terms of, as you say, who we are and how we invest in inanimate things and bring them to life. That is partly entertainment, can also be a very profound way in which we live our lives and explore our worlds and think about things on other dimensions as well. As you point out, spiritually, it's significant too. It's one of the things that makes us human, because humans exist in animal form. And I'm just saying that some of us are a little more animal than others. Uh, but uh, there's also an intellectual and spiritual plane. And I don't think that uh, in the modern world they are very well aligned, mm. by the way. Mm. But what makes us human is imagined orders. We imagine and believe in money or the human perception of time or society, uh, these things aren't empirically real. They're not real like gravity or radioactivity. They are cultural realities that we create as humans. That's what makes us human. And I've now discovered that that is my real subject.
So let's take that principle, that engagement, that giving life to, and talk about your work generally speaking. And I guess my question is, if you if you would explore with me how your work, the kind of elevated style you bring to your work and in photography and video and filmmaking and how that principle might be operative. Are you guided by that? I'm interested in creating uh, an impression of cognitive dissonance. It's a very simple uh, uh, philosophical notion called the unity of opposites. And the notion is that as humans, uh, we're somewhat binary uh, in many ways, and we can only describe something by also saying what it is not. So the thing and the anti-thing are completions. They are the thing. Uh, tall and not tall is height. Uh, shadow and brightness is light. When you bring those two opposing realities that are unified together with high style, you present to a public uh, something uh, that is fascinating because it creates a pleasurable cognitive dissonance. A perfect example would be uh, Avedon's photograph of Dovima in front of the elephants. This image couldn't illustrate the principle more. Uh, the model Dovima, who looks impossibly perfect and beyond civilized, a smooth, retouched, flawless, and about to take flight almost in her Dior gown and uh, exalted pose, stands in front of elephants who are chained, who are wrinkled, and conceptually, it's got every, it has an endless number of contradictions. Civilized, wild, animal, human, refined, rough, wildness, and uh, absolute human control. So that image has always spoken to me, and that kind of thinking has always spoken to me. And I think the first place I was exposed to that was Harper's Bazaar, the Harper's Bazaar of Carmel Snow and later of Dinah Vreeland. So another way I wanted to talk about this too is glamour. Glamour seems to me a a, a topic and an issue, and I've heard you talk about glamour and have been completely charmed by it, but ripe for this kind of engagement of how we perceive it and how we imbue life into glamour as we engage with the photograph. I've always been interested in highly idealized images of humans. Hollywood photography of the 1930s, which I was exposed to as a kid in my family, old films from the 30s and 40s, uh, glamour spoke to me. It spoke to me of a more perfect, godlike place. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles uh, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, it was a smoggy, harsh, ugly place uh, with very few aesthetic outlets that would appeal to me. In my mind as a kid, I dreamed of Paris in the 1930s or Hollywood in the 30s and 40s if I could only have been a fly on the wall in George Harrell's studio at MGM or, or you know, been in Chanel's studio. Those were the things that I was obsessed with and loved, specifically because I was exposed to them as a kid through my mom's magazines mm -hmm. and through my own explorations. And I didn't know it then, but I was looking at the works of photographers like George Harrell, Lazar Willinger, and that skin, that idealized perfection of these retouched pictures and the lighting and the whole style of it uh, romanced me from the first. When I do look at those photographs from the 30s of Harrell's, there's an elegant sort of no noblesse oblige, a, a sort of sense of suffering and, and tragedy uh, that was opposed, uh, achieved by many of those stars at that time. Real glamour wasn't about smiling and kicking up your heels. I was a fly on the wall, finally, in the shadows of a Harrell shoot, and I asked him, I had a brief moment with the man, uh, what is glamour? Which is sort of an innocent question from a young person. And his answer was, I don't know, kid, I think it's kind of a suffering look. I can tell you that looking at your work and your recent project, Hollywood Royale, that that definition to me is 
I mean, beyond hilarious. It's quite profound. And it's profound to me because it does get into a human element that most of us don't think about when we think about glamour. George Orwell is not the only avatar. Modeling myself in some ways on Richard Avedon and Irving Penn, the twin giants of uh, American post-war editorial photography and portraiture and fashion, was very, very helpful. And uh, when I started at Art Center, my first semester as a full-time photo student, no longer a, uh, a kid going to um, enrichment programs for kids or Wednesday nights or Saturdays, but finally a full-time You could take your bicycle student. out of the bushes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually drove my car to, to this location, right. uh, the, the brand-new Art Center campus in Pasadena, state-of-the-art. I was the first class admitted into this building. Hmm. The sinks weren't even installed in the darkroom at the time until the second semester I was here. The trees... Didn't uh, exist, barely. Well, right? the trees in the park out here were about as tall as I am, and I'm not very tall. Life uh, is short, and so am I. That's your line. <laughs> Life is short. Life's too short, and so am I. <laughs> yeah. And uh, guess what my joy of that very first semester was? Well, the visiting artist in residence was none other than Richard Avedon. He himself, my great hero since childhood, was here at Art Center with a major exhibition of his rather acerbic portraiture at that time, and spoke uh, to the student body uh, in, in an address. Everyone went to the photo studio, the entire school, wow. to listen to his words. He was interviewed by Charlie Potts, who was head of the photo department. And, uh, and he was here to talk to students, including me. And it was uh, incredible. Wow, what a beginning for my formal art center education. You know, having carefully studied Avedon and Penn's work, and looking at their progression, now remember at this time, this is the late 70s, Avedon was uh, beginning to explore much weightier topics than creating the fashion photographs of the 50s, such as Dovima and the Elephant. Avedon began to take portraits that many people thought were cruel, close-ups that were monumental in scale, and he really looked at every wrinkle, every pore. He didn't use flattering lighting. He didn't use all the tricks of the trade that he himself invented, the retouching, etc. Instead, he looked at them unsparingly and deeply. And I was moved by that work. Penn, in my student years in the 70s, exhibited his corpulent nudes, a collection of uh, nudes, mostly headless, quite abstract, of large women uh, that he did in the 40s and 50s and never showed until the 70s. It was his private work. He did it in the studio after hours. And I think that, for him, was a reaction also to the beauty that he was dealing with. He was photographing the most gorgeous women in the world with the tiniest waists and the most lithe bodies. So he had to leave that perfection and that rigorous uh, denial of what it means to have a body like that and look at the flip side. Avedon went from highly idealized portraiture and fashion to extremely hyper-real portraiture. And yet, and yet... I could see the connections between the early work and the later work, and that's how I began to understand the articulation of the unity of opposites. So that was highly informative to me. Because it's all about beauty in that case, right? The gorgeous right. and the grotesque were married in the work of these men, right. especially in later years. Right. Right. And I think it's a natural outgrowth of my interest in their work and in my knowledge of it that I've arrived at that place myself. So is your Palermo portrait project, which maybe the, you should explain to the listeners what that was, is that a similar kind of exploration for you? Uh, the Palermo portraits, this is a group, again, of monumentally scaled color portraits, if you will, of the inhabitants of a rare crypt, a catacomb beneath the church of Santa Maria della Pace in Palermo, Sicily, in which uh, the bodies, the remains of these people, 
are preserved in, and mummified through various means, and they're on display. They are not in coffins uh, or interred in the earth. They are standing in alcoves upright, as if ready for the day of resurrection. They're going to get to God before anybody else. And I thought that I would atone for my uh, denial of death. Of course, everything to do with Hollywood is denial of aging and death. The stars last forever. There's no forever. Uh, the stars will always be young and beautiful. That's not true. Uh, we'll always be young and desirable. Certainly not true. Uh, and so I'm going to go look at death close up, nose to nose. I'm going to go look at those bodies and discover what it really is. And then I went there and I realized they were doing the same thing. They were trying to cheat death and live forever too by being interred upright and embalmed or whatever the preservation technique was of that era and in their perfect clothes so they could be uh, reunited with their perfect body on the day of resurrection and get to, get to God before anybody else. So they were just as vain as the Hollywood stars and just as unrealistic. I know you talk about it in terms yeah. of imbuing our own, seeing our own mortality, mm-hmm. but I wonder if it has that other level too of the, the beautiful and the grotesque kind of relationship that you might There's explore. no doubt about it. Oh, of course. You know, I came back from that shoot and showed the, you know, a selection of the raw captures to my partner and some friends at a dinner at our home. And my partner said, oh, you made them all beautiful. Yes. And then another of our friends said, okay, so here's the deal. If you've been dead for 350 years, do you need a great picture? Get this guy. <laughs> well, you know, taking the learning uh, that I absorbed from the first project, the Talking Heads, the notion of projection and simulacra, I wanted to take that to another level, a little bit deeper, exactly. and engage, in, uh, uh, overlay yet another subject for myself onto that same process. And I started to be very concerned about several things, personally. The evolution of our species, which seems to be uh, headed towards uh, uh, an abandonment of our carbon life form and and of our individuality into a kind of hive mind. Uh, So that's disturbing uh, to me, but also fascinating. And the other is more politically motivated. The concept of imagined orders, the myths that we create to protect ourselves against the fear of the unknown, uh, they're all ideas, they're myths, they're imagined orders. And yet they are real to us, they protect us against our fear, and we're willing to kill each other to defend them. Another was that the Talking Heads approach visually was very clean and very simple. I wanted to use the fewest number of aesthetic gestures to create the strongest impact. I wanted to flip the script and try something extremely expressive. When I say expressive, I mean I wanted to use theatrical lighting, I wanted to use colored lighting, I wanted to use various techniques. For the Palermo project. For the, for the Palermo project uh, and go a different way. And so I realized that was expressionism. In other words, using aesthetic choices to express something. So I started to research expressionism. I was looking a great deal at the works of Otto Dix. And I discovered a suite of watercolors that are quite obscure that Dix made in 1924 in the catacombs. And uh, as I slowly learned more about the place, it wasn't just Otto Dix. Richard Avedon had visited there. Mm. Lord Byron had traveled through there and written Mm. about it, uh, and a great many other artists uh, and photographers as well. And uh, I became fascinated with that place, just like discovering Van Haven. And then I did the same thing, did my research, got on a plane after making a few phone calls and letters, and went and met the people there, saw the place, and realized I'd hit yet another unbelievable subject for my work. And it was deeply moving. I can remember that uh, I had to stifle a sob when I walked into that crypt. 
it, it was just incredible to me. What moved me about that project was the fragility of uh, humans and their uh, terrible desire to know the thing they can't know, the great mystery of life and death. But in that, says one viewer sitting here right now, is an incredible beauty about the human experience. Whereas the talking heads was this wonderful exploration about what it is to be human in terms of imbuing life and things that we see and engage with. Mm -hmm. This happened similarly, but took it to a different level and exposed a kind of vulnerability. Absolutely, and that vulnerability has a name, death anxiety. One of the controlling uh, ideas of human existence and a scourge of human existence. Then finally, let's get to the pageant portraits. And if you could explain a little bit about what that project is for the listeners, and then we can maybe explore some of the dimensions that were operative there. Mm -hmm. Another show of yours that I saw and loved. Thank you. The pageant portraits. There is an art pageant that takes place in Southern California and has taken place for 80 years in Laguna Beach. And it's called Pageant of the Masters. It is a tableau vivant in which volunteers are costumed painted and put into settings and they mimic art. They literally embody, literally embody artworks. Paintings, sculpture, uh, some also popular art posters and such are recreated on a stage with a live orchestra uh, scoring it, beautiful lighting, incredible narration. It is uh, considered by some people to be kitsch. I don't happen to feel that way. And it was one of those formative experiences. It's right up there with Charles Adams' cartoons and Harper's Bazaar was going to see Passion of the Masters with my family, age six or seven, every summer. And uh, the magic of the stagecraft, the theatricality, just t swept me off my feet. And I'd been obsessed with that for years. And then I sort of forgot about it and hadn't gone in a long time. And uh, a friend of mine called up and she said, I heard you like Pageant of the Masters. I said, how did you know that? She said, oh, somebody told me. And did you know we're obsessed with it? We go every summer. You've got to come with us. You haven't been in years, right? No, I hadn't. So we went. And uh, we drove down. This is uh, maybe three or four years ago. And I took my field glasses with me, not opera glasses, my super heavy-duty Nikon field glasses, because I wanted to look really, really closely at what was going on on that stage, which I hadn't been able to do as a child. And the illusion from 50 feet away in the audience is very different than getting up close and personal mm -hmm. and seeing the imperfection and the humanity. Mm. Uh, and I found that, again, to be brave and tragic. And I realized uh, I had found another great subject. And the subject was art making. Because all of these personal projects revolve around uh, notions of what it is to be a human. One of those, obviously, is our projection into simulacra. Another one is death anxiety, and here it was art-making and the appreciation of art. Uh, by the way, all of these subjects have deep spiritual antecedents. They've been twisted by modern culture into forms of entertainment and commerce, but they've been with us since the very beginning. They are part of the myth that we create, the reality, uh, the imagined uh, order that makes us human. 
and that's the subject matter that's always going to interest me. I'm always going to look for the most heated subject matter presented in a way that is extremely colorful or theatrical or somehow visually enticing, uh, create a cognitive dissonance in the mind of the viewer that is intriguing and its own form of pleasure, and hope that they will dig a little deeper and look at some of the supporting materials, uh, understand the context of the work, and begin to question those realities, those imagined orders. And one of the brilliant ways in which it works with the pageant portraits is you have Matthew's portrait of somebody who is creating an artifice of something that preceded them and so forth, so that there are multiple levels of artifice, multiple stories being told simultaneously. And again, the human imagination engages with those echoes of time and with those reverberations and with all those levels of artifice that are happening at the same time, which for me then complicates that engagement, makes our interaction with it that much more nuanced and complex and multidimensional. Absolutely. Uh, the effect on me, at least, I hope on viewers, of the work of the pageant portraits is that it is a hall of mirrors. Exactly. Art reflecting art, reflecting art, reflecting art. Right. I made a portrait of uh, the volunteer in costume who plays the art collector Marsha Weissman. Uh, in a painting called American Collectors by David Hockney, a very famous painting that right. was being recreated that exactly. season. Right. And to photograph this woman who has her own reality, I think she's a grandmother who volunteered her time to play the character of Marsha Weissman, uh, to be clothed in a rubber latex wig and canvas costume painted with the brushstrokes imitative of Hockney's painting, including her face, and to entitle my portrait portrait of Marshall Weiss. Uh, there's a lot of levels of uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. reflection going on there. Exactly, exactly. Let's step back a little bit, and I'm, I'm interested in exploring your own creative process a little bit. I'm working on a project right now where I'm talking to a lot of artists and designers about how they know things through the making process itself. And the popular imagination that imagines that artists hold some great vision in their quote-unquote mind's eye, and the work is too manifest that vision somehow. Um, most artists and designers don't talk that way. They talk about a certain level of, of making that gets them and going into a place of uncertainty that gets them into knowing what it is that they want to do. I've heard you talk about how you began with music and some color and some imagery Mm -hmm. And how I understood you talking about it, it was that that was your entry point into a kind of world of uncertainty of something that you didn't really know you wanted to do, but you kind of rode those things into a place of creativity and discovery. The first, my process was entirely instinctive and not self-reflective. But now that I'm older and have had a great deal more experience, I understand to a certain degree how my uh, creative animal works. And I have learned to distrust logic and to trust intuition quite a bit. And uh, so on any project, uh, whether it's personal or commissioned by others, uh, job number one is research. You can't make a comment about something if you don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. So job number one is research. That does involve logic. Then set that aside. Let that brew for a little while. And then tap into the unconscious. And a technique that's worked for me is uh, music and color. Uh, when I uh, begin to approach a project after I've done my research and let that settle, I simply find my intuitive uh, and meditative state. For me, that's 
typically around 3 o'clock in the morning in my bathroom. You've you got to know when it works for you. <laughs> I'll be tossing and turning, can't sleep because ideas are, are ruminating, and then I've got to get up, and I will pull out a packet of colored paper. Uh, it was designed by Joseph Alvarez, actually, although he's not credited with it. It's called Colorade Paper. I prefer the tiny size. They're like playing cards. I will find a piece of music in my vast collection, uh, now happily ensconced on my phone, clap on the headphones, and I'm in that sleepy, not quite awake, not quite asleep, not analytical place, because it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and I know I'm not going to be disturbed by anyone at that hour. And I'll simply indulge myself in finding a piece of music that somehow feels like the project. I don't know why I'm not analyzing it. I just know that it's the one. That goes on repeat. And out come the colors. And it's like playing solitaire. I start to create uh, hierarchies of color and music. And as I go through it, I might change to a different piece of music and a different group of colors. Once I feel secure that I found uh, the color and the sound of a project, then the next thing is research again. Now I turn to the internet. Let's say the project is, uh, I'll invent one, uh, come up with a fragrance and a name for that product for X brand. Uh, so the name is, I don't know what the name is yet, but I know that the feeling is sultry and it's tied to nature and it's going to be contemplative because I've talked to my client, that's what they said they wanted in this imaginary project. And so I've settled on the colors of blues, greens, and purples, and now I found a piece of music, maybe it's a piece by Arnold Schoenberg, and I'm creating color hierarchies, listening to a Schoenberg piece, maybe the, I think it's called Death and Transfiguration, I can't remember the name of the piece, but it's one of my favorites. And I start thinking about the colors of a bruise, and pain, and that free association leads me to the paintings of Lucian Freud, and that makes me think about the storm inside our souls. And that makes me think about a winter storm. Oh, maybe I'll call it winter storm. And I'll use the colors of a bruise. So then I'll start researching those words, winter storm. But, you know, it's wonderful. On Google, you can uh, select color to search for. So I'll see every blue, purple, green, uh, and cool-colored winter storm imaginable. And that'll lead me to other associations, and on and on and on. But it happens intuitively and instinctively. One builds on the other. And it's a process I've learned to trust. There's a quote that I wrote down that you've said that I want to explore with you a little bit. And it reads, I am more interested in how things look than how they actually are. I create fantasies. They are based on my feelings, my intuitions about a particular subject. What was the context of that? And could you comment about that particular quote? I'm not a documentarian. I'm not trying to reflect what is there. I'm trying to reflect an emotional reality for myself through symbolic terms. And of course, the great trick of photography is that you believe what you see. And the photographs that I take now, the ones I'm, uh, that are part of my fine art, are not manipulated digitally. They are the result of actual photography. The unusual colors that you might see and experience uh, in the Palermo portraits were created through lighting, not through post-manipulation. But nonetheless, they are highly manipulated, highly mediated images. These mm -hmm. are not documentaries. In mm -hmm. fact, there is no such thing as a documentary photograph because there is no objective reality in human life, let alone in a photograph. So I think that speaks to, uh, to your question. But what I'm interested in is that it's artifice or it's stylized or it's elevated and it's not what, how things actually are. Mm -hmm. And yet 
this whole conversation, and certainly my experience with your work, has meant that because you are able to create this sense of style and artifice and lighting and color and texture and theatricality, you bring me deeper into how things actually are, paradoxically. Well, that's a wonderful compliment, and I'll take it. My only response is that I'm a romantic at heart, and I have very romantic notions about humanity, and I want to express them through my work in different ways. You know, we talk a lot about creating change at Art Center. Part of our mission, really, is to influence change, and I'm interested in how artists and designers think about that, about how our students think about that, our alums think about that, and how do you think about change and well change is a big subject are we going to break it down into changes in society uh, changes in technology uh, changes in our culture what they're I'd like in, to know is what, how Matthew Ralston thinks about the change that he influences through the work that he does well I've had to question my own impulses just through the process of growing up and looking at the world and a great deal of my professional life was spent creating uh, impossibly perfect images of women and men too and creating unrealistic ideals. Let's not forget that I worked for many, many years in the cosmetics industry as a photographer and director. Uh, ten years at L'Oreal, which is a long time with one client. Ten years at Revlon. Uh, so I contributed my fair share of falsehoods about beauty and about femininity and about male and female power. Uh, now I feel that I would like to question those things, and our society is certainly ready to do that. Uh, we are uh, questioning gender display like never before, and uh, I would like to reflect that in my work and in the way that I communicate with my students. My class, uh, which I wrote called The Power of Pleasure, uh, circles, uh, circles around the values of fashion, beauty, and luxury, a subject that is not that much addressed here at Art Center. And I want them to feel free to express the values of their generation and to uh, explore the ideas that you can entice a viewer into the world of fashion, beauty, and luxury with that which is grotesque, with that which is negative, right. which that which breaks the white male hierarchy, uh, the cisgender hierarchy. It's time for that. And so I'm encouraging uh, my students to explore that kind of change, social change that's happening. Our culture is changing, and I think for the better. And uh, it may not have reached everybody, but it's going that way. And I think it's great. And it's interesting that you cite your teaching as part of the change that you affect as well, beyond these deep questions that you are throwing out there. But clearly, you're, asking, you're, you're bringing those questions to your students and, mm -hmm. and encouraging that exploration. Because mm -hmm. I, I suspected that your teaching was part of the, the way in which you're focusing some of the change that you're creating in the world. Absolutely. And the, the students are assigned to watch a number of films in the class. Some of them are documentaries about the fashion and beauty world. Some of them are expressive films that are a kind of shared literature among people who know fashion, beauty, and luxury. For example, there are no contemporaries of mine that don't know the film Blow Up by Michelangelo Antonioni. It's impossible not to know that and be in the fashion, beauty, and luxury world. One of the films that a great many of my colleagues know very well and love is called Darling. It's a movie from the 60s about the rise and fall of uh, a model, or the rise and the rise of a model. Uh, it begs the question, is uh, the achievement of riches, beauty, and exclusivity a worthy practice? And so the end of my class really asks that question of my students. Now that you understand the power of pleasure, now that you have achieved some insight into this special magical power, how are you going to use it? And is there a moral choice there? Is it a good idea to sell people things they don't need? And we examined that in that last class. 
there's pros and cons. There's no direct yes or no answer. A plus would be it uh, creates uh, new and ever-evolving standards of beauty. It employs a great many people, creates industry. We live in a consumer society. Some negatives might be that it enforces stereotypes or impossible ideals that can't be realized. So I just want to examine that. I want them to leave with a sense of ethical and moral responsibility about what they might choose to do or not do on the most simple level. Right, which is an enormously important part of what we do here and the kind of education we offer beyond the skill, beyond the practice, beyond the kind of the depth that our students need to go to reach the highest point in their given discipline. Mm-hmm. They need to be those kinds of responsible citizens who are wrestling with those questions and understanding that they affect change, but with that comes a responsibility in the way you just articulated. If you're in the business of putting images out there in the media to be admired and uh, looked at as a direction or entertainment, you have a responsibility. Yeah, beautifully said. And it's also why we're not only proud of you enormously as an alum of this institution, but also a great teacher who's bringing really provocative and important questions to our students. And uh, I just want to thank you for today. I want to thank you for your incredibly eloquent reflections. And thank you for being you. Uh, we're, we're pretty proud of you. Well, I'd like to say thank you to Art Center. Uh, Art Center is not a static thing. It's a living, breathing organism that has gone through many hands and many hearts. But it's still here. It still means something. And it means a lot to me. It's had an enormous effect on my life. And I'm still driving to Pasadena 30 years later. We are glad you are. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, consultant Bruce Mason, and post-production services provided by Freedom Podcasting. Thanks for listening.